You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for your grace to us in Christ. We thank you for the technology that we can use to um, encourage one another um, in this time of uh, separation. And we pray that you would be with us this morning as we gather for worship um, separately in our own houses, uh, but uh, present with one another in spirit, in your Holy Spirit. And so would you open the word to us and help us to be encouraged um, as we uh, read it together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come here to Psalm 15, and uh, it's a very simple psalm. It's got a very simple structure. There's a question and an answer and, uh, and a promise. And this, this uh, short sermon is going to follow that simple structure. I want to make a few observations about the question in the first verse, spend the bulk of the time on the answer, and then land the plane with the promise. And so the question, uh, this psalm was written in the days before Israel built a temple. Uh, but when the tabernacle, which was the tent of meeting that Israel used in the wilderness, uh, had become a fixed place of worship in Jerusalem. And so when it refers to the tent, it's referring to the place of worship. Um, and so David asked this question, this fundamental question, in two different ways. And each way of asking it kind of pushes us in a different direction. Um, the first is, who shall sojourn in your tent? And, and that language of sojourn pushes us in a kind of pilgrim direction. Um, we're guests in God's house. He's the host, and we're just passing through. Um, the second question, who shall dwell on your holy, hell, uh, holy hill, seems to suggest something more permanent. Now, uh, we're not just sojourning, we're dwelling, we're abiding. Uh, we're making our home with God in his presence on his holy mountain. We're residents, we're citizens. This is our home. And so David is asking this very practical question. What are the qualifications that we must meet if we want to visit God, if we want to dwell in his house? What do we have to do to sojourn in his tent and abide on his hill? Uh, but there's an assumption under that question that I don't want us to miss. David assumes that we want to dwell in God's house. He assumes that we want to enter God's presence and abide there. And so before we get to this how question, like what do we have to do? I just wanna pose this more fundamental question. Do you? Do you want to dwell in God's presence? Do you want to sojourn in his tent? Do you want to abide in his presence? And this is such an important question. Um, and next week's sermon on Psalm 16 will actually focus more deeply on the glory of dwelling in God's all-satisfying presence. But today, we're going to focus on the how question. And so I'm going to assume you do want to dwell in God's presence and that you do desire to be with him in his house to make your home where he is. And that brings me to this final observation about the question. I don't think that many of us recognize what a colossal question this is. Having been raised perhaps in the church, having been raised with a Bible, having been Christians for a long time, I suspect we sometimes forget what an astounding thing it is that we can dwell in God's house, that we can enter his presence. Because for us, the idea of coming into God's presence is easy. There's a kind of familiarity to it. Um, of, of course, of course we can sojourn in his tent. Why wouldn't we be able to? According to the Bible, um, the highest and the purest of the angels cover their faces in God's holy presence. 
And to the biblical authors, the idea that we could not only enter his tent, but we could actually live there and that he would welcome us there is an amazing and astounding thing. And I suspect that the saints in the Old Testament felt this more acutely than we do. Because the sacrificial system uh, with its regulations and its rules and the blood that was required, the gradations of holiness around God's presence, these reminded Israel that the living God is a consuming fire and must not be taken lightly. And that's where David's question comes from. Given God's holiness and his majesty and his power and his glory and his worth and his value and his righteousness and his purity, who can even visit him in his tent? Who could possibly presume to dwell in his house? That's the question. Now for the answer. The next four verses, verses two to six, give uh, 11 qualifications for entering God's presence. And so let me make a few general comments about them, structurally. Okay. First, they're clustered. Three, 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 and then two. And they alternate. Positive, negative, positive, negative. In other words, there's three things, three things you should do, and then three things you shouldn't do. Three things you should do, and then two things you shouldn't do. And this might uh, seem a bit strange, but these things all have to do with how we treat other people. Like we might, we might think, who can sojourn in God's tent? Well, the one who loves God above everything else. The one who loves to pray. The one who offers his sacrifices from a pure heart. That's the one who gets to come into God's presence. And I think those are good answers. But in this psalm, David is highlighting obligations from the second table of the law. He's highlighting neighbor love directly. And if we're thinking biblically, of course, we know that the Bible regards neighbor love as a fruit of love for God. The second great, greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, is like the first commandment. It follows from it, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in fact, the apostle John makes this explicit in one of his letters. He says, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so neighbor love, brother love, is a test and revealer of our divine love. And so David makes that the qualifications for entering God's presence. Third, more specifically, these qualifications uh, listed here in Psalm 15 all seem to be centered and flow from the eighth and the ninth commandments, which means that our uh, Ten Commandments Sermon uh, uh, series may be helpful for us as we consider what David has to say. And then finally, um, I don't think we should read this list as an exhaustive list. Um, rather, it's a representative list. Um, there's other lists that are like this, like in Psalm 24, um, in Isaiah 33, and, and these, these lists um, give us um, a big category of godliness and then get concrete in some specific ways that go uh, godliness can manifest itself in our lives. So we want to use these 11 qualifications and drill in on what does God actually expect from us if we want to come into his presence. So let's walk through the list. First qualification. And I think this is the overarching uh, qualification, the fundamental one, the, the one that is like the headliner and governs the rest. And it's simply he who walks blamelessly or he who walks with integrity. That's the fundamental question. There is an integrity of mind and heart, of thought and action, of desire and behavior that marks the one who is permitted into God's presence. It means all of your faculties, all of your powers, all of your abilities, are oriented to God and therefore oriented to the good of your neighbor. 
Even the imagery of the rest of the psalm suggests this. Um, there's these references to different body parts, right? Your walk matters to God. Your heart matters to God. Your tongue matters to God. Your eyes matter to God. To enter God's presence means that all of these different body parts and all of the heart and invisible aspects of us are single-mindedly devoted to who God is and to loving our neighbor. There's a purity and integrity of life that is the mark of the one who enters God's presence. Second, David says, uh, you must do what is right. Or literally, um, you must work righteousness. Your faith in God must be an active faith, a living faith, not a dead faith. This is what the Apostle James tells us, right? Faith without works is dead. It doesn't avail you of anything. And instead, true faith works through love. So the one who has integrity of heart is attuned to God's word and therefore does what is right in a variety of different situations. And then he's going to get more specific as we move into the third qualification. David says, if you want to enter God's presence, you must be a truth speaker. And so here we see the ninth commandment in action, right? The, the blameless one speaks truth, not lies. But notice where David puts the accent here. It's not just that we must speak the truth. We must speak the truth in our hearts. This is about inner speech. And it actually pairs really well with what we saw last week in Psalm 14. Um, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And here, the godly man speaks truth in his heart. So David is highlighting our inner speech, not just what we say to others, but what we say to ourselves. Not just what we say out loud, but what we say in secret, where only God can hear. And make no mistake, he hears all of it. He has searched us and he has known us. He, before a word is on our tongue, he knows it completely when it's just a word in our heart. We never talk about God or anyone else behind his back. And I think this characteristic is particularly relevant for us in our present circumstances. Because let me ask you, what's your inner speech been like lately? Are you speaking truth to yourself? Or are you speaking folly and falsehood in your heart? What's your inner monologue like these days? As you navigate the challenges of homeschooling and sheltering in place, as you're rubbing shoulders with your family in quarantine, as you're forced to collide again and again with the same people over and over and over again, what are you saying about your spouse, about your kids, about your roommates in your heart? Is it truth or is it not? And so this, this qualification here presses us to have integrity between our inner speech and our outer speech, between our hearts and our tongue. No doublespeak, no evasions, no equivocation, no flattery, no falsehood. Instead, integrity of speech from our hearts to our tongues. Next, we turn to three negative characteristics, which I'm summarizing as no slandering, no evil doing, no fault finding. Let's take each one of those. Slander and backbiting is the photo negative of speaking truth in the heart. But here the accent is on the tongue. Do we represent other people accurately, fairly, charitably, or do we paint them in a negative light? Do we put a spin on things and always spin others to their disadvantage? Do we speak one way to our neighbor's face and another behind his back? Because remember, God hears both. And when it comes to his welcoming you into his presence, integrity of speech about others matters to him. Because you can't sojourn in his tent if you've been slandering with your tongue. And then we come to doing evil to your neighbor. Again, this is the photo negative of doing what is right. Instead of working righteousness, you might work iniquity. And so the question is, are you looking to benefit others or are you looking to take advantage of them? Do you consider their, their interests more important than your own? So God cares not just about our words, but about our actions, about what we do. And so again, in our isolation, as we're separated, are we seeking to do good to others 
What are we seeking to harm them, to do evil um, for our own interests? Third uh, negative qualification here. Um, the man of integrity does not take up a reproach against his friend. So think about it this way. Uh, the slanderer is the one who starts the rumor, but the one who takes up a reproach is the one who listens to the slander and passes it on with eager ears. So it's possible. We may not start the fire with our tongue, but we can feed the fire with our ears. We can encourage it. We can fan it into flame. So taking up reproach means that we become fault finders and fault spreaders. When others criticize, we pile on. When the mob wants to cancel someone, we join right in. Um, Calvin, in his commentary, highlights the undue credulity that we give to rumors about the flaws of others. We, we readily believe negative things about them, and we spread them and pass them on. We take up reproaches, and we lift them high for everybody to see. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, invites us to consider a scenario that I think gets at this qualification really well. So imagine someone you know, and in fact, let's, let's make it even sharper. Imagine an opponent of yours or, or an enemy um, is accused of something horrible. They're, they're accused of doing something horrific and awful. Um, maybe think of it as a member of another political tribe or, or a religious tribe or theological tribe or whatever. Somebody who's unlike you is accused of doing something awful. Then a few days later, uh, the accusation is proved to be false. It's, it's not true. Now, what's your reaction? Is it relief? Is it, is it, thank God they're not as bad as all that? I knew they were bad, but at least they're not that bad. Or is it disappointment? Is, is there a sense in which you're kind of clinging to the accusation, kind of hoping it's true because this is your enemy and, and you want to take up that reproach and lift it high? Of course they're that way. In fact, you may even disbelieve their exoneration because you really want to believe badly about them. Lewis says this is really a dangerous thing for us to live in because in those moments, we're wishing that darkness could be darker. Uh, and this is, again, particularly relevant for our quarantine situation here, right? The faults of your family or your roommates are front and center. They're very obvious to you right now. And so how easily do you take them up? In this difficult season, it's easy, it's really, really easy to magnify the faults of others, to make mountains out of molehills, but Eager fault finders and fault spreaders, David says, can't dwell in God's presence. They cannot sojourn in his tent. Next two qualifications, they're a package, and they help to interpret each other. Um, the one who wishes to enter God's presence must abhor what is evil and love what is good. And the language here of you must despise uh, the vile person is really strong. It, it probably makes most of us uncomfortable. We, we want to say, we want to hate the sin and love the sinner. And there's truth to that. We should love our enemies. Um, but David says it strongly. We must despise the vile person and then honor those who fear the Lord. And one commentator, I think, rightly notes, this is fundamentally about allegiance. Who are your people? Are, is it those who exalt vileness or those who fear the Lord? This pair implicitly indicts our tendencies to flattery and cowardice. It's because oftentimes uh, we're tempted to just go with the flow, to flatter those who revel in what God hates. Like they may call evil good and they may call good evil, and we're just tempted to kind of go along with it um, and to, and to uh, not despise the evil that they do. On the other hand, it's easy, it's really easy to dismiss other Christians when they act really weird. And let's be honest, Christians can act really weird. We, we often want the cool unbelievers to like us, and so we'll throw the ridiculous Christians under the bus so that we can maintain our respectability with the world. 
And, and again, we're not talking about um, lying about the failures of Christians. Like we should speak the truth in our hearts and out loud, and we should hate what is evil no matter who does it. If Christians do evil things, we should be able to name it. But in the modern world, Christians, especially, especially young Christians in an urban setting like us, are very susceptible to being cool shamed, to honoring what is vile because we want the approval of the world and despising certain segments of God's people because they embarrass us. And David says, if you do that, you're not welcome in God's presence. Ninth qualification, he who swears to his own hurt does not change. If you wanna abide with God, you must keep your word, even and especially when it hurts. This means that we trust God and then we follow through. We don't cut and run uh, because it will cost us. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't seek relief if we're in a tough spot, right? So you make, uh, Proverbs 6 actually talks about a situation where um, you've made a promise, but then something happens and you're not able to fulfill it. It's perfectly fine for you to go to the person that you've promised and say, hey, can you help me out? Can you, can you give me relief? And if they grant it, you can receive it with a glad and grateful heart. But, but, if you've made a promise, if you've made a commitment and you can't get out of it, you take the hit. You don't back out. You don't cut and run simply because it's hard. We remain faithful no matter what. Finally, the last two have to do with taking interest and taking bribes. This is about integrity in our public dealings with others, in financial tra transactions and in legal settings. And the bribery one is obvious, okay? The question is whether we bend the truth for our own benefit. Is, is our integrity for sale? Will we massage the truth? Will we make stuff up if someone promises some benefit to us? And, and don't just think about money here, right? Uh, our compensation might be something else. It might be approval with the right people. It might be a, an invitation to the right crowd as long as we look the other way when the unsavory business uh, takes place. Now, taking interest is a little more difficult. In fact, it'd require more time than I have in this message to really unpack what, what's going on here because the Bible actually has quite a bit to say about our economic transactions and we live in a world that thrives on interest. Um, and so what I plan to do is I'm gonna put together a little article pointing you to some resources on this broader question since we don't have time to get into it today. But for now, I'm simply gonna say this. In Israel, the taking of interest was associated with taking advantage, especially of the poor of seeking to enrich yourself at the expense of someone else. So when you, it's, it's not necessarily identical to what we, the world we live in today. It was the opposite of loving your neighbor. And so the point of this final pair is basically show integrity in your financial dealings and in your legal dealings with others. Be a man of integrity across the board. Now, we turn to the promise. He who does these things shall never be moved. If you do these things, David says, if you, if you fulfill these qualifications, you can sojourn in God's tent. You can dwell on his holy hill. You can abide in his presence and no one can kick you out. And if we consider the general character of what we've seen, we can see, yeah, in some measure, this is attainable. But if we're honest, it's not perfectly attainable. None of us, none of us uh, complete this list perfectly. No one looks through this list and thinks, I've nailed it all the way across the board. And that's just as true in David's day. Because while these qualifications were the general expectation of God's people, 
No one came into God's presence without blood, without sacrifice, because, because as we saw last week, as Pastor David helped us to see in Psalm 14, there is no one righteous, not even one. And so who can sojourn in his tent? Nobody, at least not until Jesus. In Jesus, we see the embodiment of Psalm 15. Jesus walks blamelessly, with integrity, with single-minded devotion to God and to his house. In fact, we're told in the Gospels that zeal for God's house, for his dwelling, consumed Jesus. He's the ultimate worker of righteousness, both for himself and for others. He doesn't just speak the truth. He is the truth. He's, uh, he doesn't slander or do evil to others. Instead, he endures slander and has evil done to him. He's not a fault finder. He's not a fault spreader. He's a fault coverer. His love covers a multitude of sins. He loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. He despises what is evil and he clings to what is good. He refuses to flatter the successful and his heart is open, open to the lowliest of God's saints. He swears to his own hurt and he does not change. He keeps his promises unto death, even death on a cross. And when it comes to his wealth, he doesn't expect to be paid back. As the God-man, he, he cannot be enriched by us. He owns everything and therefore everything he gives, he gives freely, no interest. Because of this, Jesus can sojourn in God's tent. He can abide in God's house. He can enter God's presence. He can blaze a trail into the holiest of the holy places. And once there, he will never be moved. And because he'll never be moved, neither will we. Because he is our forerunner, our failures don't keep us outside the camp. It's why we can sing, I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Jesus has gone before us into God's presence, and by faith we can ascend the hill of the Lord with him and approach the throne of grace with confidence. Let's pray. Father, we do. Um, it's a privilege right now to, to say, as we're spread out across these cities, we can come into your tent. We can enter the holiest place. We can, we can come into your presence and we can abide there. We can live there day by day by day because of what Jesus has done. And because of what Jesus has done, covering our sins uh, and our failures, he then begins to transform us so that we begin to look like what Psalm 15 says. And so would you help us? Would you help us to walk in uh, the light of your truth and to live out the qualifications that we see here as we follow Jesus and we live in your presence. In Christ's name we pray, amen.